Aaron, thank you for those encouraging words. Uh, I'm still looking forward to Bobby coming back. Hopefully that's next week. Do you think that's possible, Sarah? Yeah, okay. Uh, hopefully we'll have a negative test and be able to be cleared out of uh, COVID jail, as we call it. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles. Oh, actually, before, as we're doing that, I'll just share an announcement. But in, in, we're in John chapter 20, uh, 24 through the end of the chapter. That's what we're looking at today in the Gospel of John. Uh, Josh mentioned uh, earlier in talking about the Sunday school classes, the intention is to have a membership seminar beginning in the first, uh, first Sunday in the new year. I know we have delayed it a little bit. Um, I'm kind of glad I did, just having the duties of, of, of uh, leading singing as well as uh, teaching Sunday school would have been a little bit too much. And, and I really want to maximize in-person participation of that membership seminar. So if, um, if you didn't receive an email from me, uh, I tried to gather up all the people who had expressed some level of interest in the membership seminar. But by all means, please email me if you did not hear from me about that class. And if you've got any questions about that, uh, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address uh, through the Church Center app. Uh, all of the contact information is there. All right. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Let's give our attention to God's Word as it is read. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, his, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is God's Word. I trust you are thankful for it as I am. I need divine help, and you need help as well to be a hearer of the Word. So let's pray to that end. Father, um, we need to hear from you. We need your spirit to drive into our heart the living and active word that it is. And Lord, as the one tasked to proclaim this, I, I know I'm weak. I know I cannot accomplish in my own power your work. What needs to happen is your spirit needs to take this and do a work among us. So I pray that you would uh, loose my lips to speak the truth. Um, Guard my lips to avoid saying things that are unhelpful. And give us all, I pray, ears that are eager to hear, hearts that are ready to delight in what you have to say. And so do that work of transforming us, either, first of all, saving us and bringing new life, or continuing to build into us 
that new life in Christ, sanctifying us by your truth. That's what we want, Lord, so may it happen. And if it does, and that it does, all glory will belong to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm asking the question this morning, are you blessed? Now, a lot of people have an answer to that question. They would say, yeah, in so many ways, I, I, feel, I feel blessed. People instinctively bless one another. I mean, we, we like blessing, so people bless one another when we sneeze. <laughs> and uh, I, I was curious as to why. Um, probably heard this before, but I had to look it up. Apparently, it originated with Pope Gregory the Great uh, during the bubonic plague. Sneezing was an indicator of infection. So, so if somebody sneezed, you were, and how timely, right? <laughs> Today's people sneeze, sneeze and somebody goes, not COVID, not COVID, it's just dry, it's just dry, right? But we say bless you because the possibility of infection, we're commending that person to the mercy of God. That's the purpose of saying that. Now, we, we bless each other, or we use that word in other ways, uh, depending where you are living in this nation. Uh, a Southerner, for example, and maybe some of you are Southerners, will say, bless your heart. Uh, now, I think it means different things depending on the tone. It could mean pity. Bless your heart. <laughs> you could say it that way. It could be condescension or disdain. Bless your heart. <laughs> it could be gratitude. Oh, bless your heart. Right? Now, I'm not accustomed to using that expression, but we like blessing, right? Good blessing. Now, the word in our Bible text, uh, as it shows up here, uh, in the way Jesus uses it, that word could be translated simply as happy. But I, I think if you would agree with me that happy doesn't seem to have enough weight to it, does there? There must be something more. And so if we look at the word blessing in the Scriptures, in the Bible, blessings were given by God to man for his good to Adam and for the good of all creation. God blessed Adam and Eve, said, be fruitful and multiply. Later, after the flood, God blessed Noah. Blessings that come from person to person. In Genesis, the blessing given by the patriarch Jacob to Judah, one of his sons, and also to the sons of Joseph was a pronouncement of some future good in God's plan. Now, who doesn't want to be blessed? Who doesn't want blessing? I'll take any blessing if I can get it. And even for a sneeze, I'll, I'll take that. But the best blessing you and I could possibly get is a pronouncement of some future good from Jesus himself. And that is what I want to give our focus to this morning. Our Bible text describes the one who is blessed according to Jesus. And, and I take it that in this section of John's gospel, as he wraps up his presentation of Jesus, that his own purpose in writing this gospel and Jesus' assurance of blessing, they're one and the same project. Jesus said who would be blessed, and John wants us to be blessed. Now, state it another way. The one who is blessed by God is the one who believes. So with that in mind, and as I've asked the question, are you blessed? To be truly blessed, you've got to know some things. And I take some things from this text of Scripture here, things that we need to know. Three things. You're not surprised at that, are you? Three things that we need to know. First of all, to be blessed, we need to know what not to believe. What not to believe. Second, 
who to believe, and third, how to believe. A pretty straightforward outline. What not to believe, who to believe, and how to believe. And I believe those are uh, demonstrated for us here in this Bible text. Well, first, to be blessed, we need to know what not to believe, what not to believe. Now, perhaps you have been told by coaches, teachers, well-meaning parents, people trying to encourage you to achieve something, maybe you've heard it, just believe in yourself, right? And maybe you've said it. The father of the Word Faith Movement, Norman Vincent Peale, said, believe in yourself, have faith in your abilities, I get it. I don't want to, to impugn everybody who's ever said that. I, I understand that the intention behind this statement is, is that a defeatist attitude can certainly be an impediment to success in, in some particular endeavor. But really, if we think about it, is that the best advice? Believe in yourself. Are your own abilities the most reliable, steadfast place to put your ultimate trust? Doubting Thomas thought so, but he was wrong. Now, John tells us, as we look at our Bible text, that a week has passed since Jesus showed himself to the other disciples, to the other ten. Absent Judas, of course, he had killed himself after betraying Jesus. Thomas was not present in that first upper room meeting. Now, the rest of them had testified to Thomas that they had seen Jesus, but he refused to believe. And this is really how Thomas gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas. But I don't know if you've thought about this. I don't know if his doubt, Thomas's doubt, was any more profound than the rest of the disciples before they saw him. Just consider this. In Luke's gospel, he tells us there that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women with them told the apostles that Jesus was alive. And here's what Luke says. But these words seem to them an idle tale. Luke 24, 11. So I'm not sure Thomas's doubt was any more profound than the other disciples. Thomas missed that first upper room visitation. And so, so maybe in his mind, if we try to get into his mind a little bit, thinking that if the others saw something, it was not physical. He certainly... Didn't deny, perhaps, that they saw something, but maybe in his mind, in Thomas's mind, it wasn't physical because the very nature of his, of his uh, seeking affirmation, maybe he thought they'd seen some kind of apparition. So he declares this, that he will never believe unless he both sees and touches. He said, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. He is emphatic. I will never believe. Now, just as a, as a brief aside here, I, I do believe that Thomas's absence was part of Jesus' grand plan to make a greater point about what it means to believe in him. But for now, just for now, I want us to think about what's behind Thomas's unbelief. He's a skeptic. Consider the implications of what he is saying. I will never believe. His statement immediately casts doubt on the reliability of his fellow disciples as witnesses. Think about it. He is effectively saying to them, your word cannot be trusted. You have been duped. You are simple-minded. That's the implications of what he's saying. And in that moment, Thomas has set himself up as the most 
reliable decider of what is and is not true. Thomas is saying, I know. Now, if you think about it, of course, there's a little bit of arrogance in this, isn't there? Maybe a lot of arrogance. Now, I'm not even sure that Thomas is aware of the implications, like I said, of what he's saying. But that's really what it comes down to. Now, in the minds of many moderns, many present-day people, skeptics are really the ones that are celebrated, aren't they? The scientific people, the realists, the empiricists, the skeptics are the reasonable people. They are the ones we should trust, right? Now, I'm not arguing against scientific inquiry. There's a, a place for scientific inquiry. There should always be careful investigation to establish any truth claim, but we know this. Some things simply cannot be explained scientifically, naturally. There are things that are outside of the realm of science that are every bit as true. And even if it is possible to say so, even more true, like the resurrection of the Son of God. We're in this season, this Advent season. The church has called it Advent. Really, means the arrival, the appearance of the Son of God in human flesh. And, and we know this. Many, many reasonable people, people with scientific minds, they view this season with skepticism, don't they? And so what does our culture do in response? They opt for something that demands absolutely nothing from them. A white-bearded, red suit-wearing, strangely omniscient, and character-judging, gift-bearing elf, right? The culture prefers that. Prefers that. Why? Because it can be celebrated without really believing it. Of course, skepticism about the supernatural facts of Jesus is nothing new. We know, we know that. Unbelieving historians will certainly, they do not deny that there was, a, in the first century, a man named Jesus. They will not deny that this Jesus attracted a significant following. They won't deny that. They, will, they won't deny that he was sentenced to die in the first century by crucifixion under the order of Pontius Pilate. These, these facts are generally uncontested. But when it comes to who Jesus is, being the divine Son of God, and, and the things that he did and said, and the fact that he, when he was crucified, did not remain in the grave, well, those facts get quickly dismissed, don't they? They get put into the same category as Santa. Story to celebrate, but not to be truly believed. And so why? Why are they dismissed? As I was thinking about this, people who dismiss supernatural truths about Jesus are trusting themselves as the final decider of what is true. And they have decided that things outside the natural realm cannot be true. So when it comes to ultimate things, things about Jesus, the things that we need to be truly blessed, you can't trust yourself as the final decider of what is true and right and good. You have to trust something, someone outside of yourself. To be blessed, you have to know what not to believe. You don't hold yourself up as the final arbiter of truth. Secondly, to be blessed, you have to know who to believe. 
who to believe. A Gallup poll that was taken in 2016, it was the most recent one I could find, maybe there's more recent ones, but that Gallup poll said there were 90% of Americans believed in God. It surprised me. Now, I'm pretty sure that that statistic has probably eroded somewhat in the last four years, but I think it's safe to say that even today, a vast majority of Americans are theistic. But as I was thinking about what it means that people say that they believe in God in some sense, what does that belief mean to them? What does it look like to truly believe in God? Well, here's an essential truth that we come to understand from our Bible passage this morning, and it's this. Trusting God is trusting Jesus. There's no real faith in God of any substance that does not trust in Jesus. It's one and the same faith. Here's why I say this. Once Thomas was confronted with the reality that Jesus was alive, he made this all-important confession. Verse 28. My Lord and my God. Now, what he was saying could not be clearer. Now, just look at the way that this is arranged. Here, here we are at the end of the gospel. John, the gospel writer, he records this testimony from the lips of Thomas as a way to wrap up what he has been saying since the very beginning. The very thing that he declared about Jesus at the beginning of the gospel. John chapter 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In that moment, Thomas realized that he was standing in the presence of the glory of God as Jesus' piercing glaze bored into his being and turned on the spiritual lights right there. Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, his, his unbelief was crushed under the weight of evidence of Jesus' divinity. <laughs> and upon revealing himself to Thomas, Jesus said, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I can't help but think that Jesus confronting Thomas there not just with his physical appearance and his wounds, but in that moment, the entirety of Thomas's experience was, was being brought to bear in his mind. Thomas's experience with Jesus over the last three years. And so what did Thomas know to this point? And as we consider Jesus as Lord and God, we must ask ourselves, what do we know about Jesus that John has already presented to us for our consideration by way of review. We ask ourselves the question, who could change the molecular structure of water into something that would normally involve growing and harvesting grapes, then properly aging it? Who could do that? Who could hear about a dying child and then heal him simply by declaring it from afar? Who could tell a lame man that he encountered by a pool. Just pick up your bed and walk. Who could take a few loaves and some fish and, and turn it into a feast 
for over 5,000 people, who could supersede all laws of nature and walk on the surface of a raging sea, who could give sight to a man who had never in his life had the use of his eyes, and who, who could call out to a dead man who'd been in a tomb four days and order him out. Jesus did that because he is God. Now, John, John tells us in the wrap-up to this that Jesus did many other signs. So there was more evidence. He just included these seven. More signs which are not written in this book. The things that John said that Jesus did, the things that Jesus did testify to the fact that he is God. But it's not just what Jesus did that asserted his divinity. It's also what he said. Now, we can read through the Gospels and see that Jesus was not, he wasn't um, constantly asserting his divinity. He didn't go around saying, I am God, I am God. He didn't do that. But, but when the time called for it, he never shied away. He was always clear about who he was. There was a moment when he was challenged by the Pharisees, talking about Abraham. Jesus answered to, to them, these Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 8, 58, I love this. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That, that just, it hits me. With, with, the, with, the, with the force, at least how it feels to me, that Moses felt when he revealed himself to him. Say that I am sent you. Jesus taking the divine name for himself. That was clear to the Pharisees. They knew what he was saying. They wanted to stone him to death right there because they didn't believe it. So to them, it was blasphemy. Jesus affirmed to the Jewish leaders that he was the Christ, that he could give life to his own people. He said this. He said, my father is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them, those that he saves, out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, they knew what Jesus was saying. They wanted to stone him to death for it. So listen, and I think you understand this, but it, it's always worth swimming around in these truths. To be blessed, you have to know who to believe, and believing in Jesus is believing in God. There's no separating the two. Believing in Jesus is believing as well that he is God. It is believing that he was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, that his life was lived without sin, that he died and he rose again on the third day. And part of that believing is understanding why you're trusting him. What are you trusting him for? You see, believing is knowing that because you believe you have been saved. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that in saying Jesus is Lord, it includes all that he has revealed about himself. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear that. If you're listening at home, watching at home, know that. And what do we need saving from? A vital part of, of putting our faith in Jesus as the God who he is is understanding why he died and rose again. 
The Apostle Paul wraps this up so beautifully in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, there's, there's a little phrase in there that if you leave out, we miss the point. If it says Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was raised or buried and that He was raised, it, it leaves out something vital. Paul says that Christ died for our sins. Dying for our sins is the reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's why he was born. That's why we celebrate him. We don't just celebrate a little baby in the manger. He doesn't just stay there. That's so much sentimentality around the birth of Jesus. We forget why he was born in Bethlehem. That's what Joseph was told. He was told this by the angel when he found out that Mary was pregnant. He was assured this child was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. And he was told, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For the reason he is being called Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. That's why he was born. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Don't forget that. So like Thomas, acknowledging Jesus as, God's, as God means knowing that you need a Savior. One who could do something that would result in your sins being taken care of in the sight of God, like the psalmist says, being cast as far as the east is from the west. So it's not, just, it's not enough just to acknowledge facts about Jesus. It's not enough Get this, it's not enough to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. It must go much deeper. When we say to Jesus, you are my God, it means that you're submitting to him as Lord. And that reality has to last way past Christmas. It's got to be something in our public expression, but also that Jesus is Lord that, that impacts our most private moments. Saying Jesus is Lord means that he rules over our relationships. He rules over our plans. He rules over our stuff, over our money, over our time, over our thoughts. And knowing, and knowing that his rule in your life is the best thing that you could ever know. So let me ask, are you blessed? Do you know who you believe? Do you know that believing in Jesus is the way to truly believe in God? And do you know that your salvation depends on trusting in Christ? Can you say to Jesus, my Lord and my God? Well, finally, to be blessed, you have to know how to believe, how to believe. Well, in this moment, and I've said this already, Thomas was a skeptic. He approached the news about Jesus' resurrection like a modern-day scientist. He wanted observation. He wanted physical evidence. But we know this. Not everything that is true is physical. And for our sake, Jesus reinforced that truth to Thomas. Thomas had put all of his trust in his senses. 
Jesus answered his skepticism with a a direct encounter, in effect saying, giving him what he demanded. But then in that moment, Jesus used this as a teaching moment and gave Thomas, all the disciples who were there, and all of us who would come after them, an essential truth. How to believe? Jesus says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Stated another way, just because you have not personally observed something does not mean it's not true. In particular, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And just because something has never happened before does not mean it cannot be true. And that's for us. Yes, there were 500, we're told by the Apostle Paul, 500 that witnessed Jesus after he was raised but that resurrection will never be repeated. The Son of God has once for all taken on a human body. He has once for all died and has been raised. We will not see it happen again. So how do you and I experience that blessing of believing without ever seeing? Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. How is it that we experience that blessing? In verse 31, and I, and I think John put these stories together, these, these vignettes together to make this point. In verse 31, he gives the answer to how we can believe without seeing. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written so that you may believe. And and note this, what John says about his own gospel and about the things that he tells us, that can be applied to the entirety of Scripture. Because what John wrote, the Holy Spirit spoke through him. Now, when it comes to how people approach the fact of Jesus' resurrection and and really the, the truth claims about him, On one end of the spectrum, you have the, the, we've talked about it, like Thomas exemplified in the moment, the physical empiricist, right? The skeptic who only will believe in physical evidence or the truth of something. But, you know, on the other end, we have those who are superstitious or maybe more charitably, we can say them, we can call them experientialists. Here's what I mean. Maybe they believe. I'm just drawing from a wide range of things I've read about Maybe they believe because there's a statue of Jesus somewhere that bleeds from the wounds. Or maybe because a particular prayer was answered in the way she wanted. That's the reason for belief. I got the answer. Or or strangely, because a potato chip looks like the Virgin Mary. Or, Or maybe they heard an audible voice. Or maybe they had a vision or dream. I call these experientialists because their faith is primarily anchored in some personal experience. Like the empiricists, they anchor their faith in something in themselves. The empiricist says reason. The experientialist says experience. That's why I believe. Now, listen, Christians fall... Well, Christians are at risk of falling into this experientialist category. Let me give you an example. This is going to be at the risk of offending some of you, perhaps, if you're older. Maybe you remember that 20th century hymn, He Lives. It proclaims uh, the central truth about the resurrection of Jesus, which is good. 
But the writer of the hymn does it in a way that kind of leaves something out. And here's what I mean. I'll quote it. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. That is true. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Okay. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart, also true. And then he puts this out there. You ask me how I know he lives? The essential question. What's his answer? He lives within my heart. Now, is that the best answer? Well, is that the, is that the thing that we're going to anchor this on? Well, he lives within my heart. That's the reason I know. I don't know about you, but my feelings ebb and flow. They're not the most reliable witness. The answer is not he lives because he lives within my heart. You ask me how I know he lives? Because it has been written. That's it. It's the word of God. God declared it to be after it happened. Now, I could say, you ask me how I know he lives if I'm Thomas. Well, I put my hands in his side, or maybe I didn't. But for us, we don't get that benefit. You ask me how I know he lives? It's written. That's the standard So for the one who's tempted towards physical empiricism and the experientialist, here's how we know. Here's how we can be blessed. We believe because God has spoken. Words matter. The word of God about Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul says. John 10, 7. Faith comes from hearing. We believe because we have heard. Hearing what? And hearing through what? The word of Christ. And what is the word of Christ? It's the good news about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. The apostle Paul is so, so very confident about the power of this message. He says this in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the word of Christ. For it is the power of God for, the power, get that? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this word about Christ, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Live by faith in what? In who Jesus is. And where do we get that? In the gospel. These are written so that you may believe. So how is it that we believe and can be blessed? Trust what is written. Trust the announcement in the scriptures. The very word of God. Exhaled, as it were, by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 Trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because the Scriptures declare it to be the one who died for your sins and rose for your justification. The entirety, the entirety of Scripture has been given ultimately to reveal Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, these things have been written so that we may believe and we can trust it because everything else that goes with faith in Christ is authoritative because God has spoken because it has been written. So we have to get this, brothers and sisters. It's not just the facts about Jesus' resurrection, and this is how it applies to us today. Maybe in this room, everybody here acknowledges Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is wonderful. But it's not just the facts about the resurrection of Jesus that we've got to take to heart. Everything that has been written, we must take to heart. So if you want to be blessed, take up the gospel. Hear it, believe it, and be saved. And if you want to continue to be blessed, hear and believe to grow in your faith. Hear and believe 
to be comforted. Hear and believe and you'll be rebuked. Hear and believe and you'll be corrected. Hear and believe and you'll be encouraged. Hear and believe you will be taught. Hear and believe and you'll be equipped for every good work. Hear and believe and you'll be able to refute the scoffer. Hear and believe and you'll be able to fight temptation. It's for all of life because it has been written. So if you've truly believed in Jesus, you have life in his name and you are blessed. You are eternally blessed. And here's what is true now. And I'll finish with these few words. Apostle Peter writing his letter, first letter, chapter 1, 8, and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I take it that Peter's describing what it means to be blessed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Because it has been written, because God has spoken, we can know that we don't need to trust ourselves. We're not the final arbiter of truth. We know because it's been written, we know who to believe that Jesus is God. And we know because it has been written, that is how we have come to believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We always come back to this. For without your word, we would not know about your son as our savior. But because you have spoken, about these things that have happened in history, oh, we have every confidence that you will accomplish that saving work in our lives and that sanctifying work for us to live day by day. So thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you emerged from the tomb having paid the penalty for our sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring apostles and prophets to write so that we could know. Thank you, Father, for the grand plan to call us to yourself. And in all of this, all glory belongs to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.